This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Since you know we have a congregation here and we have new recruits here for 12 weeks on campus, uh, we're going to be walking through foundations with them. So this whole next week is the foundations of the Christian faith, how it works, how the functionality works. I'm not interested in high thoughts about God. I'm interested in high thoughts mixed with high living. Christianity is meant to act. It's meant to do something. And a lot of us have right notions, correct doctrine, but we don't live correctly. So we're all concerned about heresy, but what about our behavioral heresy? The fact that our life as Christians totally contradicts the scriptures. Does that matter to anyone? I'm interested in us having correct doctrine, but I'm also interested in us living correctly. And to live correctly, you need power. You cannot do this on your own. That's what last week's message was about. You need something from outside of yourself to invade this body. It's called power, the Holy Spirit to literally move in and take charge. And without that enabling grace, you cannot do it. And so as a result, the basis of Christianity is understanding our weakness, his strength. Our need, his ability. Our sin, his sinlessness, and his power over it to defeat it in our life. Our faith doesn't rest in us, it rests in him. And so where we build from, it's interesting, because if I were to say, what is the most foundational dimension of the Christian faith? It'd be very easy to say this, Jesus. And you would not be incorrect. However, there's something that causes us to see clearly who Jesus is. And so I'm going to call it the Word of God. The Word of God is the foundation of our faith. What do you believe in? You could say, hmm, Jesus. That's true. But very specifically, you believe in the Word of God. Yet, the Word of God is sort of a mysterious statement. When I say Word of God, some of you think of the Bible, and you would be correct. Some of you think of Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh. This was revealed in the Apostle John's writings in the Gospel. You would be correct. And some of you would say, well, that's the work. It's the revelation of what God did on our behalf. That's the Word of God. That's what He expressed and did. He revealed in and through His love, shed on the cross, His blood shed on the cross. He showed Himself to us. You'd be correct. We call it the triumvirate of the Word of God. A triumvirate is three parts. The Word of God in text, Scripture. The Word of God in person, Jesus Christ. The Word of God in action. When the Word of God that was revealed in Scripture came and took on a body, what did that body do? That is the full manifestation of the Word of God. He gave up His life for us. And in those three things, you combine them into uh, one grouping... You say, what do you believe in? I believe in that. That is where I put my trust. What the Word of God in text says about the Word of God in person, what that Word of God in person did on that cross, there you go. So, what's the first? So what I want to start with today is a foundation of foundations. 
I want to start with the Word of God in text. The enemy hits at the Word of God in text on purpose. Why? Because if you can undermine the Word of God in text, what do you undermine? Everything else. What the Word of God in text reveals, which is who? Jesus Christ. And how about what Jesus Christ did? You see, if you can hinder the Word of God in text, you've won. You've spoiled the gospel. However, as Christians, when we ratify afresh our confidence in the Word of God, then suddenly Jesus Christ shines. Then suddenly what he did on the cross was the work of God on our behalf. You see, one of the great labors of the enemy is to remove the godness from the text of Scripture. You ever notice that uh, if you remove the godness, in other words, that God wrote it? It's like, well, it wasn't written by God. It was written by men. I mean, come on, Eric. Who wrote the book of Luke? Well, Luke. See, you just said it with your own mouth. It wasn't God that wrote the book of Luke. It was Luke carried along by the Spirit of God. In other words, these words that are captured in the text of Scripture are, in fact, God's word. And that's the foundation of our faith. And what happens when you lose the godness of the Bible is you lose the godness of Jesus Christ. You ever seen that happen? Oh, he wasn't God. He was just a good moral man. Now suddenly, imagine, you lose the godness of the Bible, and now you've stripped the godness from Jesus Christ. What happens to the godness of his work on the cross? It's lost. And suddenly, you're going to have to go to your own pockets to figure out your salvation. Because that was just a good man giving you an example of what love could look like. Now, what's your example? Hey, come on, whip it up. God had to save you. There was only one that can remove your sin, and that's God. If God doesn't come, if God isn't the one that does the work, you're up a creek. The gospel hinges upon this logical flow, which is why the enemy goes straight at the text of Scripture and starts badgering it. He says, this was written by men. It has faults in it. It has all sorts of flaws. You can't trust this book. Many of you that are in the room are going... Oh, that's exactly what's been going through my mind. So, that's why we have a message like this. Rock beneath my feet. A study in the compelling reasons why I believe the Bible to be God's word and holy true. Mm-hmm. I said that. Am I insane? Am, am I just a guy who spends most of his life studying scripture? Am I that idiotic that I'm going to say it's holy true? I mean, come on, Ludi, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. I spend my life in the Bible, and I'm here to testify to you that it's true. All right, so now I want to give you the reasons why. This is the, for those of you that have hung around Ellerslie, you've heard me get all loud and uh, passionate about this topic many times. Because the foundation of the text of Scripture is everything for us as Christians. If I have a high view of the text of Scripture, it automatically equals, like a mathematical equation, a high view of Jesus Christ. Because I guarantee you, when you read the Scriptures and you believe it's God's Word, you're going to say, wow, look who it points to. It points to the highness, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And then when you have a high view of Jesus Christ, what do you think about His work? You have a high view of His work. And as a result, your Christianity will work. So one of the statements that Leslie and I have used for years is this exact one. That's why I named it this. It's strange to stick, you know, a personal pronoun 
in a title of mine. I don't usually do that, my. Uh, and so I want you to adopt this. I want this to be your statement too. The thing that Leslie and I always say is we need rock beneath our feet on this one. So we'll hit a trial. We'll hit a circumstance which is new to us. Very rarely do we just get the same trial over and over. Usually we get a variation of the trial, which forces us, because the enemy wants to hit us where we're not strong. He wants to hit us in a new way. And so we get strong, and we're like, okay, enemy, I got you in my sights. And then we get hit from the back. And so the key to standing firm in any trial is to know on what you stand, that it's, it's, it's concrete, it's solid. Concrete is a terrible term for it, because concrete isn't that solid compared to diamond. It's diamond! It will not move. It does not shake. It's God. And so when you have Scripture as your basis, what does God say about it? That's what we always do. We'll go to Scripture. Usually we'll say, get our Proverbs out on the table. That's another statement we use. Get our Proverbs out on the table, the wisdom of God. Let's just get it out there. Now let's go through the rest of Scripture. What does God say? All right? It's pretty clear. Hey, enemy, sorry to inform you of this, but I got some rock beneath my feet now. And you can just see him break out in a cold sweat. He does not want you to have scripture beneath you. When you have a high view of scripture and you get it beneath you, you stand strong. You even smirk as you're doing it. In the midst of the worst trials, you have a smirk on your face because you recognize the enemy has to bow to the text of scripture. He has to submit to the victory of Jesus Christ. Jesus rules. And so when that's beneath your feet, you're strong as a Christian. Your position on the Word of God defines your response to the Word of God. So this is directly excerpted from what usually would be on Tuesday for the students. Okay, So when we get to this on Tuesday, we'll fly through it. You have the Word of God. How do you relate to it? So we entered, you know, we were born into a culture that has become postmodern in my lifetime. It's gotten weird in its thinking. Very fuzzy-brained. A lot of people call it jello-y. Uh, it's, it doesn't reason rationally anymore. It can have two contradictory notions hang out in the same brain and everything's fine. In other words, you can believe this to be true and this completely contradictory statement to be true and it's like, well, they're both politically correct so that's where I'm going to stand. You see, it isn't based on facts anymore, on logic anymore. That's not how postmodernism works. And so as a result, we have a high view of man's intellect that has entered into American Christianity and a low view of God and his word. It's really a funny thing. How can we call that Christianity? And so what the first one, the first option is, is we approach the scriptures from above it. We put spectacles on the end of our nose and we sort of look down at the scriptures like, oh, the poor text. You know, it's, it's been around for so long and it's been, you know, uh, mistranslated and pieces of it were probably lost. And I mean, this chunk was probably just thrown in in the Middle Ages. We don't know. And some group of gray-headed men that, you know, probably weren't even Christians gathered together one day and just threw the books together and said, these are the ones we think should be considered canon. All idiocy to believe any of that is just to follow the bait of the devil. The history of the Bible is very clear and it's actually supernatural. Everything about it is amazing. The more you study it, instead of listening to all this ridiculousness that's out there, is the more you believe it. It's like, wow, this is an amazing book. So if you're above it, you tend to critique the text of Scripture. You want to correct it. I know this is what it says, but this, is, this would make more sense today. And so we have a tendency to correct it. We take a higher view 
than the scriptures themselves. We don't submit to the scriptures. The scriptures submit to our interpretation. We contour it to meet our sensibilities. Now this, a lot of us in this room have struggled with what I'm going to call position number two. Because at first it doesn't sound bad. It sounds very good compared to position number one. So many of you in here are just disgusted with position number one. It's like, oh, I can't believe anyone would do that and treat the word of God that way. So we come in at position number two, which is equal to it. It's the buddy. And so you spend your day with the word of God. You have your text of scripture, you know, your devotional in the morning, and you stick some nice, pleasant-sounding, rhyming sort of scriptures on the refrigerator and look at them and memorize them and sing songs. You see, you're equal to it. You esteem it as good. You treat it as a friend. You bask in its kind phrases, but you ignore its call to give up all. You see, if your friend is over at your house and he says, hey, go down to your room and make your bed. You're gonna be like, "Uh, excuse me, uh, oh friend, but you don't have that authority in my life to command me to do something. You see, a friend doesn't command you. A friend hangs out with you and makes you feel like a friend. And so when you approach the scriptures that way, what you are unwittingly doing is diminishing the actual position of the word of God. Option number three, you approach it from below it. Here's the scriptures. It's above you. If I'm going to train anyone, first things first in your Christianity, get right in your position with the scriptures. Make sure that you know it's above you. Believe it with unquestioning fervor, reckon it with unwavering faith, and bend to it with loyal, worshipful devotion. Now, I recognize it's sort of hard to come to position three if all you've heard is criticisms about the text of Scripture. It's like, I'm not just going to trust this book. What if it's wrong? Those are good questions. Again, that's why we have this message. The crafty voice, calling into question the obvious truth. There are certain things that are taking place in our culture today, and I don't know if you guys have felt this, where insanity is beginning to rule and become the new uh, reasonable thinking. To the point where it's like, okay, am I the only one that looks at all of this and says, this is completely ridiculous? You know, the media will say something, act like it's totally fine. And I'm thinking, okay, why, why do I feel like the lone man out here that's going, that is stupidity. Everything, laws that are being passed to enable people, you know, so that we can be sensitive to them. I mean, this is just like getting ridiculous. And yet, that's exactly what happens. This crafty voice undermines sensible thinking, even reality. Eve has been told something very specific. Hey, Eve, don't eat from this tree. The day in which you eat of it, you'll surely die. So why did she eat of it? Doesn't that sound like a... a Famous trend for us, too. It's like, you know what the truth is, and yet you're doing the exact opposite? Welcome to the world in which we live. It's because there's a crafty voice out there. What is the crafty voice saying? Think about what he is saying. God has given his word. Do not eat of that tree. For the day in which you do, you will surely die. That's called God's word. And so what does the serpent do? Did God really say that? Are you sure that God said those words? Are you positive that he meant this tree? You see, what the enemy wants to do is call into question the obvious truth. You know what the truth is, and yet now it's getting sort of confusing. The enemy brings confusion. He's the author of confusion. 
Did God really say that? Yes, he did. He did say that, and I submit to it. So when the Bible is sitting in front of the devil, what does he say? Did God really say that? Are you sure this is God's word, not just you know, some men that sort of put together some writings? Just good literature. You sure? Do you know the answer to that question? The basis of belief, it breaks down to this. The word of God is the word of God, and it cannot lie. So during our semester, you guys will hear this a lot. It's the basis of belief. What do we believe in? We believe in something that is rock beneath our feet. You don't just stand hoping. If there was a chair behind me, and, and someone here was saying, yeah, Eric, the legs are complete fake legs. I know they look like, but they're like made of paper. And at the moment you sit on it, you're going to collapse. There's a big hole here, and you go into a, you know, a, a dungeon full of hungry crocodiles. <laughs> well, and then God comes in and says, Eric, you can sit in the chair. I built it. Who do I believe? See, the basis of belief is saying God's word is spoken to me. I believe his word over all this other nonsense. So watch. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to put my weight on it. And when I put my weight on that which I believe God has said, that's where salvation comes. That's where the proving in this realm, this natural realm comes, is when I believe God's word over the enemy's word. You're believing someone's word. Who do you believe? The word of God. It has been brought to us in textual revelation and in personal revelation. In other words, it's a book called the Bible, and it's also a person known as Jesus Christ. I know that sounds strange at first, but that's what the Bible teaches. So here's a big word. This is one of your first Greek words, uh, and it's, I know it looks like logos, and it's not like it's a, it's a, a crime if you pronounce it logos. That would be the American way of saying it. If you want to feel sort of smart and Greek, though, you could say lagos, okay? And then people at first might look at you as, you know, that you don't know how to pronounce it, but then you could say, yeah, so I've been studying Greek. And then people are like, whoa, like you could go home and use that. So what is the logos? It's Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. It's the vehicle of revelation, the perfect expression of the Father, the embodiment of the divine word of scripture in human form, Jesus Christ. Let's think about the word word. It's a carrying vehicle. I have a thought in my head, and you don't know what that thought is. It's hidden. It's invisible. The same way God the Father is spirit, and no one has seen him at any time. But who has revealed him? The Word. See, a Word is a carrying device that reveals that which is invisible. So I have a thought in my head, and it's invisible. And so I package it into a Word. And then I shoot it out of my mouth, and it goes flying through the air. It goes in through your ear canal and goes right into your brain, and it's unpacked. And actually, you can read my mind, and you can know what is in my mind. You can understand it. Why? How? Through a word. The Father has something to express to us. He has something, a burden, that is on his heart. He wants to reveal all that he is to us. So what does he choose as his vehicle to do it? A word. The word of God in text, and then the word of God in person. is his chosen vehicle to share what is in him with us. And you can now know the Father, how? By believing in the Word, by believing in the Son. When you see Jesus, you see Him. So our terminology, the Word, the Logos of God revealed in text is known as the Scriptures. We oftentimes call it the Bible. That's a newer term, but the ancient term would be the Scriptures. 
The word or the logos of God revealed in person is known as Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same term. You see, the entire scriptures speak of one who will come. He's known as the Messiah. He's known as, in the Greek, the Christ. And when he comes, he will look like this. And guess who looked exactly like that and who fulfilled all prophecy of the text of Scripture, of the Word of God, the Word of God in flesh. The Word of God in flesh perfectly fulfilled the Word of God in text. And that's why we put our faith in him, because we put our faith in the Word of God in text, and then he, it was fulfilled in Jesus. That's why we have faith in Jesus. It's not because he's just a nice guy that someone told us about, but that he perfectly matches the Word of God in text. Rightly handling the word. How we handle the word of God in text is how we are handling the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. So I want you to pause on this statement for a second and to realize that when you mishandle the word of God in text, that you're actually mishandling the person of Jesus Christ and the intimate expression of God the Father to us. It's the ultimate trust that we've been given. We've been given the ultimate treasure known as the revelation of God unto us. And so the way you treat the text, if you're above it, criticizing it, if you're just a buddy with it, or if you submit to it and call it Lord and Master, you rule my life, God. You created me. You know what I'm here on earth for. You define my existence. My life belongs to you. Depending on how you relate to it defines how you relate to Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, study to show thyself approved unto God. He's talking to Timothy. A workman that needs not to be ashamed And then he uses the term rightly dividing, which means handling. To handle correctly the logos. Timothy, you need to handle rightly this trust, this word that you've been given. Are we handling this correctly? Hmm. Discipleship 101, handling the word of God. You see, how we handle the word of God in text is going to greatly impact the way we handle the word of God in person. And how we handle the word of God in person is going to greatly impact the way we handle what that word of God in person did on that cross when he was buried, resurrected, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. So how does that affect you? It affects you if you handle the word of God correctly. If we diminish the word of God in text, we will diminish the word of God in person. If we challenge the word of God in text, we will challenge the word of God in person. If we remove the divinity or the godness From the word of God in text, we will remove the divinity or the godness from the word of God in person. Oh, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good man. Whoa, slippery slope there. Literally, some of the greatest battles in all Christian history have centered around that exact issue. The word of God in text being from God and the word of God in person, Jesus Christ being the son of God. Not just a guy who's like, oh, he's a lot like God in the way he behaved. You know, good job. We're going to put an extra emblem on you, a little extra, you know, uh, stuff in your direction. Go, yeah, this Jesus guy is a good guy. It's like a seal of approval from God. No, he's from God, a very substance God. He is God. So I've done previous messages called the 10 simple proofs. I wanted to walk through those 10 simple proofs with you. A child can accept the Bible as divine. Divine is a way of saying from God. But the most learned men of this earth often reject it. Doesn't that cause a little challenge to us? You know, if very intelligent people throw out the word of God and call it, you know, ridiculous, fables, 
it, it's sort of challenging for us. We want to be intelligent. I don't want to be an idiot. Why is it that a child can look at the text of Scripture and believe it came from God and actually heed it? But then the most intelligent men of this earth oftentimes reject it? Well, there's a lot of complexity to the answer of that question, which is why Jesus actually says we need to become his children to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We think we're so smart trying to criticize and critique the text of Scripture and look for flaw in it. However, the reason we hide from that bright, shining light and put a big black blanket over it is because we prefer our darkness more than we do the truth and the light of Jesus Christ. Is this book lacking intellectual credentials? I mean, come on. If these smart men actually think this is a ridiculous book, then, I mean, what, what should we be thinking about it? Well, now, this isn't my argument for you. I just want to lay out some thoughts. Quite the opposite. The greatest minds in history... Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, Pascal, Faraday, the greatest inventors, Pasteur, Carver, Fleming, Kelvin, Gutenberg, the greatest intellects, Bacon, Descartes, Mendel, Planck, Kepler, the greatest composers, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Handel, Hayden, and the greatest world leaders, Wilberforce, Washington, Lincoln, Churchill, believed it to be, in truth, God's word. Now, that's just a smattering, by the way. But all throughout history, don't buy anything you're hearing today. Some of the greatest leaders that shaped world history all we're grounded and founded upon the simple fact that this book is divine. Isaac Newton says, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God. Written by men who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. Thank you, Mr. Newton. Now, Sir Ambrose Fleming. We must not build on the sands of an uncertain and ever-changing science, but upon the rock of inspired scriptures. I like this guy. Daniel Webster, education is useless without the Bible. I consider it an intimate knowledge of the Bible. I consider an intimate knowledge of the Bible an indispensable quality of a well-educated man. Boy, we could use that quote in our public school systems, couldn't we? Francis Bacon, the Bible is the book of God's word. Van Gogh says, I look upon all four Gospels as thoroughly genuine, for there shines forth from them the respected, reflected splendor of a sublimity proceeding from Jesus Christ. Queen Elizabeth, tell your prince that this book, speaking of the Bible, is the secret of England's success. I don't know that that would be the statement any queen would make today. I, I like this quote. It's a little longer than the others, but I had to stick it in. My middle name is Winston, so I feel in a, a kinship with this particular quote. I, I, Winston Churchill is just one of those fascinating guys. We reject with scorn. You need to sort of have that voice with it too. We reject with scorn all those learned and labored myths that Moses was but a legendary figure upon whom the priesthood and the people hung their essential social, moral, and religious ordinances. We believe that the most scientific view, the most up-to-date and rationalistic conception will find its fullest satisfaction in taking the Bible story literally and in identifying one of the greatest human beings with the most decisive leap forward ever discernible in the human story. We may be sure that all these things happen just as they are set out according to Holy Writ. That means Holy Scripture. We may believe that they happen to people not so very different from ourselves, and that the impressions those people received were faithfully recorded and have been transmitted across the centuries with far more accuracy than many of the telegraphed accounts we read of goings-on of today. In the words of the forgotten work of Mr. Gladstone, we rest with assurance upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture. 
Let the men of science and learning expand their knowledge and probe with their researches every detail of the records which have been preserved to us from these dim ages. All they will do is to fortify the grand simplicity and essential accuracy of the recorded truths which have lighted so far the pilgrimage of man. So let's go through our 10 simple proofs. That was just a foundation. Proof number one, it is supernaturally built. This book is impossible to put together. I know many people have these conceptions of how this was put together, like someone just got together in a room, grabbed a whole bunch of ancient writings that sort of were moral and hard to live by, and stuck them in a book, and then a group in the 300s who was just like, yeah, yeah, all these other people, you know, that are like talking about these other books, we're, we don't like those, we like these. And they put their seal of approval. In other words, it was built by men, approved by men, when exactly the opposite is the case. It's written over a 1,400-year span. Okay, the longest book I've ever written is over seven months. 1,400 years. It's very difficult to coordinate a conspiracy of authorship over 1,400 years. Over 40 generations. Written by over 40 authors. Now, here's the interesting. It's not just a whole bunch of kings that were in a lineage that were preserving and protecting their identity, their dignity, and their uh, posterity. Written by over 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars. Who were its writers? Here's only a mere sampling. Moses, who was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. A fisherman, Peter. A herdsman, Amos. A military general, Joshua, a cupbearer, Nehemiah, a prime minister, Daniel, a doctor, Luke, a king, Solomon, a tax collector, Matthew, a rabbi, Paul. What a diverse group over 1,400 years. Where was it written? Again, only a small sampling. Moses wrote it in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel on a hillside in a palace, Paul inside prison walls, Luke while traveling, John on the Isle of Patmos, others in the rigors of a military campaign. So, In other words, the arguments that say that this was a coordinated effort to try and put together a book completely fall flat when you actually know the history of this book. See, what is so compelling about this book is that though it was written over 1,400 years, over 40 generations by over 40 authors in all sorts of status positions in life and in society, it perfectly agrees with itself. Figure that one out. This book is simply put impossible for a man to put together. Is it the work of an anthologist? In other words, a man or a group of people that put it together and then tried to call it God's word. Any part of the human body can only be properly explained in reference to the whole body. And any part of the Bible can only be properly explained in reference to the whole Bible. The Bible at first sight appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish, If we inquire into the circumstances under which the various biblical documents were written, we find that they were written at intervals over a space of nearly 1,400 years. The writers wrote in various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a heterogeneous number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. In their ranks, we have kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislators, legislators, fishermen, statesmen, courtiers, priests, and prophets, a tent-making rabbi and a Gentile physician, not to speak of others of whom we know nothing apart from the writings that they have left us. 
The writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types. They include history, law, criminal, uh, civil, criminal, ethical, ritual, sanitary, religious poetry, didactic treaties, lyric poetry, parable and allegory, biography, personal correspondence, personal memoirs and diaries, in addition to the distinctively, distinctively biblical types of prophecy and apocalyptic. For all that, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is a unity which binds the whole together. An anthology is compiled by an anthologist, but no anthologist compiled the Bible. It is 66 books all saying the same thing. Study it. For those of you that have heard otherwise, spend some time in it. You're going to find that it all is in agreement. It is pointing towards the same thing. You have a problem. It's called sin. You need a redeemer. You need a Messiah, a rescuer who will deliver you from your sin. This is what he will look like. He has come. He has done it. He has taken that sin upon himself. This whole Bible foreshadows and fulfills perfectly without argument amongst its writers. Proof number two, it performs what it promises. Hey, I mean, when a, when a book is written over 1,400 years and it adds in the fact that it's telling you what will happen, what if it doesn't happen? Well, then it's the work of men. What if it does happen? <laughs> Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the Bible, roughly 2,000 of which already have been fulfilled to the letter. That means exactly as they were foretold, with no errors. The remaining 500 point to the future and will still be certainly fulfilled. What are the odds of this? For this book to present 2,000 future events and have them occur, by chance and without error, is statistically inconceivable. Conservatively, and this is very conservative, if you gave each event a lenient chance of 1 in 10, the odds of all that has transpired over these past thousands of years in proving the biblical prophecy accurate would be less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That is a one with 2,000 zeros written after it. Why did God tell us beforehand what would happen? Listen to what Jesus says. And now I have told you before it come to pass. Now he's speaking at communion table, right? This is the last supper. And he's actually saying that one of you will betray me. But there's a principle here. I tell you things before they happen, says the word of God, so that when it is come to pass, you might believe. So, we have an entire record known as the text of Scripture that in great detail has foretold exactly what would happen. And I know this isn't, I, I can't go into that yet. I have plenty more messages that we will go into, especially in the semester, that goes through the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the person of Jesus. But, let it suffice to say, he did it. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. This is Joshua speaking. Actually, the same name as Jesus. Yeshua in the Old Testament is the same name that Jesus has. And behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed thereof. That's just in the book of Joshua. That's the word given to Moses, handed to Joshua. And Joshua says, every single thing that God spoke to Moses has been done. And now here I am after all these thousands of years saying, and guess what? All that was given to Moses, all was given to all those 40 authors, everything has been fulfilled. Yes, there is still a second coming. There are still things that will happen, but everything that has happened, 
matches perfectly with what our God has said. The Messiah test is given in Scripture. We call it the canon test here at Ellerslie. In other words, it's a measurement. You will know me because I will perfectly match what I've said. God builds a stage, sets the background music on, and then fulfills all prophecy by walking onto the stage himself. The very one who built the stage, the very one who gave the prophecy, fulfills all the prophecy in his own life. It's, it's an amazing drama. I'm just going to give you a couple hints at it. 750 years before Jesus Christ. That's a long time, by the way. 750 years. It says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Shall call his name God is with you. God will be with you. Born of a virgin. 750 years before it happens. Micah, 750 years before Jesus, the exact location of this one who is born of a virgin, who will be God with us, is revealed. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The one who is coming that will be God with you, mm -hmm. the one whose goings forth are from of old and everlasting, he will be born in Bethlehem. 750 years before it happened. A thousand years before it happened. David, the psalmist, carried along by the Holy Spirit, begins to write the most unusual passage. He begins to describe in vivid detail the cross of Christ. I'm just giving you a little taste. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Fulfilled to the smallest granular detail in the person of Jesus when he looks like he's a common criminal. He is being declared as the son of God even before a nation that is hostily trying to destroy him, to shut him up. Even their work against him is only proving him to be exactly who he is. Cyrus the king. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus would destroy seemingly impregnable Babylon and subdue Egypt along with most of the rest of the known world. The same man, said Isaiah, would decide to let the Jewish exiles into his territory go free without any payment of ransom. So there's a prophecy. Now what happens? Isaiah made this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was born. 180 years before Cyrus performed any of these feats, and he did, eventually performed them all, and 80 years before the Jews were taken into exile. Josiah the king, one unnamed prophet of God, declares that a future king of Judah named Josiah would take the bones of all the occultic priests, priests of the high places, of Israel's king Jeroboam, and burn them on Jeroboam's altar. This event occurred approximately 300 years after it was foretold, and the man's name was Josiah. Do you guys follow me on this? This is a supernatural book. Everything about it. There's no other explanation. You can go all, you know, hey, well, that's, uh, maybe they wrote it after the fact. Yeah, you have no clue about the history of this book. This book was done before a watching world. This book was known by a nation. It actually shows the weaknesses of its leaders. What book in all of history that chronicles the history of a nation ever shows weakness of the very nation itself. Proof number three. 
God himself declares it to be a supernatural revelation. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For the word of God, the logos of God, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God himself is making clear, even through his word, that what we have here is supernatural. Proof number four, though strong empires have sought to destroy it, no one has been able to stamp it out. It's just a book. Have you ever noticed that no one goes after Homer's Iliad and tries to destroy it and rid society of it? No one cares. It's an ancient book. What is it about this book? Nations have literally gathered force together to stomp this book out. And who got stomped out? The nation. You follow history, you'll see it. Though strong empires have sought to destroy it, no one has been able to stamp it out. Josh McDowell says, The Bible has withstood vicious attacks of its enemies as no other book. Many have tried to burn it, ban it, and outlaw it from the days of Roman emperors to present-day communist-dominated countries. Voltaire, the noted French infidel who died in 1778, said that in 100 years from his time, Christianity would be swept from its existence and passed into history. But what happened? Voltaire has passed into history while the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost all the parts of the world carrying blessing wherever it goes. For example, the English cathedral in Zanzibar is built on the side of the old slave market, and the communion table stands in the very spot where the whipping post once stood. The world abounds with such instances. As one has truly said, we might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop it in its flaming course as attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible. H.L. Hastings says, Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book. And yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at, the book for, at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book still lives. Bernard Ram says, A thousand times over the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or Bell's letters of classical or modern times has been subject to such mass attack as the Bible, with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet? And yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. Proof number five, it has been better preserved than any book in history. So you can talk about its discrepancies. No one concerns themselves with the discrepancy over Homer's Iliad that this isn't accurate with the original text. No one's ever even thought it. Why is it that the most well-preserved book throughout the ages is the one that comes under such skeptical review? Being written on material that perishes and having been copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press did not diminish the style, correctness, or existence of the Bible. 
Compared with other ancient writings, it has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. Professor, I'm not going to try and say that, Montiero uh, Williams, uh, one of the experts in all these ancient Eastern writings, he says, pile them, all the sacred Eastern books of antiquity, if you will, on the left side of your study table. But place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. This is a guy who ran a British museum, one of the leading authorities on ancient manuscripts. The interval between the dates of original composition of the New Testament, the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible, and the foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as firmly established. F.F. Bruce says, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestations as the New Testament. That means it has all the backing of manuscripts. He also says, scholars are satisfied that they possess substantially the true texts of the principal Greek and Roman writers whose works have come down to us of Sophocles, of Thysodides, of Cicero, or of Virgil. Yet our knowledge of their writings depends on a mere handful of manuscripts, whereas the manuscripts of the New Testament are counted by hundreds and even thousands. Proof number six, it is astoundingly accurate in its histories and accounts. So if you were to just view the Bible as a historical book, and test it scientifically against all uh, archaeological findings, what would you discover? In all my archaeological investigation, I have never found one art artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the Word of God. This, this man is quite something. He's a master of 45 ancient languages. Uh, he was a famous linguist. There are about 40 of these kings living from 2000 B.C. to 400 B.C. So now he's going through the list of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And he says, each appears in chronological order with reference to the kings of the same country and with respect to the kings of other countries. No stronger evidence for the substantial accuracy of the Old Testament records could possibly be imagined than this collection of kings. Mathematically, it is one chance on, there's a number, a big, big number, we're starting with a 750 and a whole bunch of zeros, that this accuracy is mere circumstance. He's talking about just the lineage of kings being so accurately conveyed, matched perfectly, not just with Judah and Israel's histories, but all the surrounding nations, all archaeological findings perfectly match what the Old Testament says. This man also says, in 144 cases of tra transliteration from Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Moabite into Hebrew, and in 40 cases of the opposite, or 184 in all, the evidence shows that for 2,300 to 3,900 years, the text of the proper names in the Hebrew Bible has been transmitted with the most minute accuracy. That the original scribes should have written them with such close conformity to correct philological principles is a wonderful proof of their thorough care and scholarship. Further, that the Hebrew text should have been transmitted by copyists through so many centuries is a phenomenon unequaled in the history of literature. Proof number seven, it's too honest to be human. <laughs> Every other nation that has ever established a historical account of its nation was assigned by the monarch in charge. And it all plays to the flattery of the monarch. 
There's only one book in ancient history that ever speaks straight, and that's the Bible. The Bible isn't written by the monarchs. The Bible isn't written to protect the kings. I know David wrote in the Bible, but guess what? God writes about David in the Bible too. And even though he's a man after God's own heart, God does not shy away from calling a spade a spade. The greatest hero in the Bible potentially, David of the Old Testament, all of his weaknesses are on full display for all the nations of the earth to see. Mm -hmm. What nation would ever hire someone to write that? You see, this is actually illogical that any nation would put this together. This people group, think about the Jews. They could say, hey, this is the Bible. And you could say, yeah, it's your book. No wonder you defend it. Who looks bad in that book? The Jews. The Jews are under judgment. They're destroyed because of what's written in that book. This isn't a work of the Jews. This is a work of God. I love this quote by John Wesley. This book had to be written by one of three people, good men, bad men, or God. It couldn't have been written by good men because they said it was inspired by the revelation of God. Good men don't lie and deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would not write something that would condemn themselves. It leaves us only one conclusion. It was given by divine inspiration of God. Simply put. Proof number eight. The power of darkness stands virulently against this book. That in and of itself, if you were to take any one of these, you could stand on it and say, yep, that makes sense to me. Why is it that the powers of hell hate this one particular book so much? The powers of darkness have been attempting to snuff it out, discredit, and undermine its credibility since the beginning. Why not pick on the book of Homer, Sophocles, Thysodides, Cicero, or Virgil? What is it about the Bible that deserves such spite, such hate, such opposition? Is it that it teaches love? Kindness and mercy? Is it that it commands equity and justice? Is it that it gives hope, ministers peace, and offers salvation? If this book was just a simple literary anthology of wise thoughts, it would not receive the attacks it has received. Come on, why would they crucify Jesus, the word of God in flesh? He's a nice guy. All he's doing is coming to save you. You see, this book has one agenda, and that's to save you. And yet men have chosen to love their darkness and reject the light. Proof number nine. Simply put, this book changes lives. Homer's Iliad doesn't change someone. This book changes people. The great Christian men and women from history past all agree that if you heed its words, if you believe its content, if you obey its commands, you really do live. James 1 says, every good, gift and perfect, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning of his own will. He brought us forth by the logos, the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted logos, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of this logos and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. You've been given the word because God loves you. And this implanted logos breeds life so that you might be saved. And when you do, any testimony in here of someone who actually has believed this word, yielded to it with confidence, will say the same testimony. It changed me. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How are we born again? 
by this word of God. And not just in text, it's by the work of the Spirit of God in and through Jesus Christ. I know that. However, the Logos is found in the text of Scripture first and foremost. That's how we recognize that Jesus Christ is in fact the word of God made flesh. Proof number 10. Men and women throughout history have gladly died to preserve its every jot and tittle. I like this quote by Pascal. I prefer to believe those writers who get their throats cut for what they write. Every, I mean, you go through history and you'll see that these men did not bend when they were questioned on what they wrote. Their account of the resurrection of Jesus, guess what? All the apostles would rather die than recant. Every single one of them died. John the Apostle was the only one that actually survived. He got exiled to an island because they threw him in a pot of boiling oil and he came out unscathed. Every single one of them, for the sake of the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus, said, I will not change my story. I saw what I saw. I know what I know. What causes someone to do that? You're going to do that for Homer's Iliad? It's great work, right? I mean, hey, Homer was a talented writer. This isn't the work of men. This is the work of the divine. And it's not just the original writers that were willing to die, but throughout history, the men and women that read these words and believed these words were so transformed by these words that they too were willing to suffer cruel deaths and endure great privations in order to preserve the integrity of every word within the Bible. I, I threw in a bonus proof for you guys. I have personally been changed by this book. You know, it's interesting because in giving an argument, it's not just me being detached from this. I'm going to share with you, basically, very simply, this is why my life is what it is. This is why I'm strong. This is why my marriage works. This is why my family works. This is why my ministry can work. It's because I believe this book. And I believe it with unquestioning fervor. God said it. He's right. If you want to deal with me on anything that I say you don't like, you know, you disagree with it, come to me with the word of God. That's what speaks to me. I will submit to the word of God. You're right. I'm wrong. God's word is above me. God's word is above all of us. We are submitted to the headship of the word of God. I have personally witnessed its power in my life. I've personally stood in awe at its complexity, yet simplicity of focus. I wanted, just because of the time uh, that we're in, I wanted to go through the history of the presidents of the United States really quickly with some quotes, and I want us to just see the history of our nation afresh. There is something worth fighting for here. I know it's very easy to just sort of subside into silence and say, well, you know what? Uh, to hell in a handbasket. That's the United States. There's nothing we can really do. You can shine light. You can be a Christian. You see, most Christians are looking for bomb shelters and they're getting into the fetal position as we speak. They are accepting defeat instead of rising up and recognizing the greatest time for a movement of the Spirit of Grace is when darkness seems to have overcome. Right now, we're no longer a Christian nation. We're no longer a post-Christian nation. We have traversed into a very dangerous territory known as anti-Christian. There is one thing that if you believe it in our culture, you are considered politically incorrect, and that would be Jesus. Jesus is the only way. And ironically, that's what God himself says. So it puts us in a little pickle, doesn't it? We're in a culture that isn't yet outright anti-Christian in the sense that we're on the persecuted countries list, and yet we're probably one of the most difficult places on earth to share the gospel clearly 
because of the social pressure right now. So I say, let's be Christians. Do you know what you believe in? If you believe this is God's word, then react to it. Respond to it as if it is, in fact, God's word. He's given you a commission. This isn't a buddy coming up to you saying, you know what, you might want to be a Christian. You might want to actually stand up. You know, yeah, I just don't feel like it. God's word is commanding us. It's high time to take a stand, Eric. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Rise up and live as you ought to live. So presidents of the United States and their reflections on the Bible. George Washington, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and Bible. John Adams, the second president of the United States, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. So great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens in their country and respectful members of society. His son did become a president of the United States. That's how he was trained. Here's his son, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. It has been my custom for many years to read the Bible in its entirety once a year. Andrew Jackson, the seventh president. The Bible is the rock upon which this republic rests. Abraham Lincoln, this is a good quote, by the way. I am busily engaged in the study of the Bible. I believe it is God's word because it finds me where I am. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good of the Savior of the world is communicated to us through the book. Ulysses S. Grant, 18th president. To the influence of this book, we are indebted for the progress made in civilization. To this, we must look as our guide in the future. William McKinley. The more profoundly we study this wonderful book, the Bible, and the more closely we observe its divine precepts, the better citizens we will become, and the higher will be our destiny as a nation. Theodore Roosevelt. This is a really good one. A thorough understanding of the Bible is better than a college education. What president in his right mind would ever say that? Isn't that an amazing statement? It's like, yeah, yeah. Could you imagine one of the presidents says it today? It's like, hey, yeah, what you guys are getting is better than a college education. Just remember that when it gets hard this semester. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson. I am sorry for men who do not read the Bible every day. I wonder why they deprive themselves of the strength and pleasure. When you have read the Bible, you know it is the word of God because it is the key to your heart, your own happiness, and your own duty. Herbert Hoover. There is no other book so various as the Bible, nor one so full of concentrated wisdom. Whether it be of law, business, morals, etc., he who seeks for guidance may look inside its covers and find illumination. Harry Truman says, The fundamental basis of this nation's law was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teaching we get from Exodus and St. Matthew from Isaiah and St. Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. If we don't have the proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in the right or anybody except the state. Hmm, prophetic. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, the 40th president, this is the final one I put in. Of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. The Bible speaks of one thing. And as a church, we believe the word of God in text because it shows us something very, very precious. The way I oftentimes say it is like a map for buried treasure. The map itself, the text, is not actually the end. If you get a map for buried treasure, it doesn't mean you suddenly have treasure. You do, but you need to obey that map. 
You see, you need to believe that that map is accurate and go on the journey that it takes you on. The map that we've been given, the text of Scripture, shows us the treasure, and his name is Jesus Christ. So you will find all of God, all of life, everything you were created for, when you heed this word and obey it. Put your confidence in it and believe it. The treasure isn't the text. The text points to the treasure. But we will give up our life to preserve that map, to preserve that text. Why? Because it's the only thing that points to the treasure. That's why we give up our life, to preserve every jot and every tittle. Take your grubby hands off the text of Scripture. That is not something we mess with. We revere it, we esteem it, we submit to it. It shows us our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And for that, we cherish it, we love it, we protect it, we die for it. Because He is the one that has captured our hearts and our lives. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.